Are we starting? Sorry, I was eating my Doritos. <laughs> was your lady chips? My lady chips. Those were actually quite loud, ma'am, if you don't mind. Toning it a down. Chip, <laughs> that would be great. It's not very demure. Listen, a girl has got to eat. <laughs> Health and wellness right here. <laughs> we're ready? Yep. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. I'm Amy. And guys, that was so nice. Three names in the introduction. Yay. Warms my cold, dead heart. Ha! <laughs> um do you (laughs) erin guys i had a busy week i've been working late i worked earlier this morning on the saturday probably have to work again tomorrow um amy how's your week been not too bad yeah can't complain you know learning some new kitchen hacks making some homemade gnocchi so freshening at life you know how it is yeah you were just saying that you how's your friday night i didn't do anything well to be clear i did a lot of things last night it was all unexpected so the best nights. Hit, hit up some shows, made some gnocchi. It was uh, butternut squash. I really am more concerned about the gnocchi than any of the music I saw last night. <laughs> it was it was pretty great. What time did you make the gnocchi? Because when I saw it on Instagram, yeah, I've, uh, yeah. it was late. Yeah, my hands were covered in uh, gnocchi dough, so I couldn't exactly live Instagram it. So they're all later grams. It was right after. Okay. Work. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I was Later like, grams. I love it. <laughs> I was like, did she make gnocchi at 10 p.m.? <laughs> no, but I did eat it for breakfast, and yeah. it was wonderful. Nice. Oh, nice. Love and large. Erica, how are you? Okay, so... Okay. <laughs> so, I... my One of my, like, saliva glands, salivary glands, is... Um, it's swollen. I probably have some bacterial infection or something. Mm. So last Sunday, <laughs> my face, I mean, I looked, I looked awful. And my face like swelled up at least one side. Now it's more like a, a uniform swell. So I'm trying to get that sorted. And it's oh like God. navigating the, the medical system in Ontario is really shitty. Mm. and you know like you have to make an appointment for an ultrasound and and i'm like well why can i get an ultrasound the same Mm day and um then to get to the ultrasound place it's 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 like way out in bumfuck nowhere orleans (laughs) and so we're gonna get mail about that uh, well (laughs) people in orleans know that they're in bumfuck nowhere okay that's true it is kind of a choice if you're driving to Orleans, so this is a bit inside baseball for those of you who are outside Ottawa. Orleans is um, a suburb on the eastern side of Ottawa. So when you're driving to Orleans and you, and you do it through GPS, the GPS falls silent for like five <laughs> minutes. And you're just like, get <laughs> like, I'm like, this thing on? Like, is this thing on? Because you're in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm just, I'm just... It's just you didn't been a get that ultrasound, did no, you? No, no. Oh, um, event update. I will be giving a talk on Friday at Carleton University. The Women's Center graciously invited me to speak on Black History Month and cultural appropriation. That's on Friday, February 16th. That's right. At what? 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock. 
Friday night. Yo, I'm that important. Wow. <laughs> That's exciting. I know. Over here. I know. I'm a headliner. And then I'm like, fuck, I got to carry this shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't have two other women to like play off of. Sure. It's different. But yeah. now you get to like wear a boss ass outfit. Do your makeup real nice. This is true. And this. Ooh, I can wear. I can break open the Fenty. Ooh, special yeah. occasion. Yeah. Oh. Do you only wear your Fenty makeup for special occasions? What am I missing? No, I just have. Am I doing usually, it wrong? Because I put some on for you guys. You, <laughs> oh, Amy, that's lovely. I like, no, I'm I'm touched. <laughs> no, I'm seriously, I'm not even fucking around. I'm touched. Um, no, but I usually have like a couple of foundations in rotation, okay, two cool. or three. So right now it's Fenty and NARS Matte Velvet, and I really like the NARS Matte Velvet. It's excelente. Um, I'm going to keep that in mind. I know. It's, look, Texas, man. I used to live in Texas. I know. <laughs> so um, you'll, every now and then you'll hear I'm fixing to do something. Oh, I, I use, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, so before we get into it, we do have a quick little corrections corner that Amy is going to take us through Ooh, um, from our last episode. Yeah, so I just wanted to kind of revisit something that we talked about on the last pod. We were talking about uh, trans inmates um, and what's and the changes federal government is bringing in in Canada. Some language that um, you know trans people have their their gender of choice or a preferred gender, and of course that's that's not the case. It's not a choice. It's not um, something that people opt into. They have a gender identity that they're born with, and their gender identity may not correspond with their sex, their birth sex, and that's what makes trans people trans. That they have a, a gender identity uh, that's different, and cis people don't. Cis people share their gender with their sex. Uh, and there's there's and there's a privilege there because they don't have the incongruity. So um, just want to reflect on that and remind people to you know seek out resources, question, and if you don't know the answer, it's okay to to ask and uh, find out more. Well, I have okay. So I think where a lot of people get stuck is choice. The idea that you were born with a gender identity that's different from your sex, I think is where a lot of people get stuck. Mm. Because the sex that you're born with is not a choice, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that the whole idea of gender, gender identity is um, it being yet another sort of birth um, or a consequence of birth rather than a consequence of choice. Mm -hmm. And when I say choice, I don't mean that you get up this morning and you choose to be something else, but it could be that you feel like you're something else. Like, Mm -hmm. it's all legitimate. I'm not not talking about the illegitimacy of any of this. But I thank you for that correction because I think that that's where a lot of people get stuck. For sure. And um, I think it's worth exploring. Yeah, and uh, keeping in mind, too, that there's a spectrum of gender identity and not all trans people um, express their gender identity in the same way. Not everyone wants to transition and commit to gender reassignment surgery. Some people are fine with, you know, being trans in identity but not going through a full transition Mm -hmm. in the way that we often think that trans means. You know what it is? It's the identity part. The identity part introduces this idea that it's there's a choice there so for example 
I have a black identity. I have a West Indian identity. But that's, in a way, it's not by choice, right? It's who I am. Mm -hmm. But in a way, I choose to acknowledge it. That's right. So yeah. maybe that's the nuance. Yeah, and I think that people who are liberal and progressive who believe, who, you know, are happy to use the correct gender pronouns and um, aren't going to just be like, oh, well, there's only two genders and everyone else is stupid and that's wrong. I think that when you don't interact with trans people on a regular basis, you still, you kind of lack that nuance. And so I think it's important as feminists, as progressives to educate ourselves, which is just what I think Amy is kind of getting at. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank well, you. I, I feel smarter now because I found the little fucking nuance. I feel like yeah. I feel like yeah, I feel yeah. like I, I feel like I just educated myself. Yeah. Uh, yay. Yeah, we, and yeah. we should keep doing that and keep challenging ourselves. And we invite people also to give us feedback if there are things that we can yeah. do better and learn more about. For we're, sure. We're very open. I can think I can speak for all yeah. three of us. Absolutely. Yo, yeah. I have been I've been called out and taught stuff. Great. Um. And guys, we launched a new website this week, yeah. uh, badandbitchy.com. Uh, we also launched a new feminist advice column called Dear, Dear Bitches. Bitches. Um, so submit your questions to us via social media or email, and we will answer one a week. Um, and don't forget to become a patron of the pod, patreon.com slash badandbitchy, and, and you can get cool things. And uh, we're going to build that out and... With your support, get more cool shit. Thanks, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into it. This Week in Feminism, uh, McLean's Magazine in Canada launched a special issue of their magazine highlighting the issue of pay inequity, sorry, pay equity, well, I guess even inequity, and even going so far as to charge men 26% more for the issue to reflect the 26% pay gap between full-time wages between men and women in Canada. So the covers of the magazines are essentially the same cover. One says women pay $6.99 for this magazine, and there's a, an individual uh, uh, UPC scan code. And then the alternate magazine says men pay $8.81 for this magazine with a separate scan code. So McLean says uh, that they did this because Quote, after years of stasis, pay equity is having its moment as the next beat in the cadence of the quote of the hashtag Me Too movement. Our hope is that these dual covers stir the kind of urgent conversation here that is already happening elsewhere around the world. Um, in Canada, estimates for the pay equity gap range from 8% to as high as 50%, depending on what you're measuring. And McLean's decided to go with 26% as the cover for the cover based on Statistics Canada data that compared full-time working women with full-time working men, uh, which generally captures most workers in Canada. Uh, and they continue saying, important pay equity cases are being brought forward by women at Canada Post and the Ontario Provincial Police. And this year, the federal government promises to introduce long-awaited pay equity legislation for federally regulated industries. So the reporting that was done by McLean's is extensive and it addresses several intersectionalities. Uh, they wrote about the wage gap for racialized women, young women, trans women. And uh, Erica, do you want to take us through some quick stats? So 31% uh, 
um, is the difference in combined earnings between men and women. 26% uh, of the average pay gap between, is the average pay gap between men and women in full-time occupations. 55.6 cents on the dollar is what women of color earn compared to white men and 88.2 cents when compared to white women. Whew. Wow. Holy fuck. Oh, I got another one. Over 30% of the wage drop for trans women happens after they transition. Wow, that's a very specific statistic. Yes, yeah, it there was very a much profile with uh, a woman who is a does it has a consulting uh, business uh, and bef you know how, was booming before she transitioned and afterwards uh, saw this uh, very stark decline. Lost a lot of her clients, sadly. Um, and I mean, there's a lot that we can get into in terms of what causes pay inequity. Um, but I think certainly in that example, it's very clearly transphobia, like her <laughs> clients, like oh, dipped, yeah. like. Um, so there, there's a lot to dissect here for sure. Yeah, I saw some people. So I think uh, I don't know if it was McLean's or the Ottawa Citizen that posted about this on Facebook, but I saw definitely some men, of course, saying, "Well, I'm going to boycott this issue, boycott this magazine. This is unfair." Bitch, you know what's unfair? Not getting equal pay. Getting paid 26% less than you. That's not fucking fair. Okay, this reminds me of an Oprah episode a <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, there was this, and this episode stuck out in my mind. Oprah did, like, this switcheroo. So, between blue-eyed and brown-eyed um, audience members, and basically treated the blue-eyed audience members like shit. And then the brown-eyed audience members got, like, all of the bells and whistles. They got great treatment. And it was just to sh And the amount of people who didn't get it, oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. So this reminds me of this. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, yeah. little, it's a little gimmicky, but it definitely gets a rise and gets a conversation going. Um, and they're not, they're backing it up. And it, what's really frustrating about the backlash is, like, there are receipts. Like, stats were done. A reputable magazine that's predominantly read by men, like white men, <laughs> is, like, still not willing to accept their findings. Like, that, like hey, that's pretty upsetting. Well, they don't <laughs> feel like they're privileged, yeah, so they're not privileged. Yeah. Well, maybe we should just actually take back some of their pay, and maybe then they'll realize. But Well, <laughs> I think that white men compete against other white men and they don't give a shit about anybody else for the most part hashtag not all men um so like somebody i remember a, my former boss telling me she said i said well how come like they don't see that you know there's there's a pecking order and they're on top she says they don't they they're not concerned about everybody else but other white men yeah and so when they're comparing themselves with privilege, they don't see it because they're comparing themselves to other white men. Right. Nobody else exists. That's who they identify with. Yeah. To go back to our previous discussion. Right. So they're, they're looking to, I guess, compete for top, top billing. Yeah, top dog. With, with yeah. folks who are bringing in. Well, big bonuses and whatever like that to them they're like oh well, I didn't get the bonus that this yes, person did or yes. I should be negotiating or getting you know as many billable hours as so and so and not not so much worried about what everyone else in the office who may not be men aren't worried about about women in the workplace as in itself sure 
they're worried about a whole bunch of bitches ruling their career. Mm-hmm. Right. And and they're wor- there and that's why people are worried, I guess, about yeah. equity programs. Yeah. Because they feel like then we're coming for their jobs, which we are, by the way, you're on notice. But I mean that's it because But they're gonna yeah. have to compete yeah. on a different level. Yeah. And that's, and, yeah, yeah. Well, this goes kind of back to, so Denise Balkasun in the Globe and Mail wrote a column this week that raised mediocrity? the issue of, about mediocrity hires yeah. so and good. how, like, we've talked about a number of times on this podcast about mediocre white men failing upwards just because they're there and because the other people above them are also white and very likely also mediocre. So they say, oh, like, cool, we'll bring you up, we'll give you the opportunity because of our inherent biases against women or people of color or disabled people or whatever. Well, that's why we produce mediocrity. We produce mediocre products, and even if they're good, they fall into mediocrity or just fall altogether. Um, You can at me. I, I got receipts. You know what I mean? Like, we do not do excellence in this country. Excellence is determined by um, a very small elite group of people in un- like the greater St. Lawrence corridor there. Mm-hmm. And um, it's based on themselves and they produce mediocrity. I would like to go back to post media and talk about how that's a great example of white mediocrity and how white mediocrity basically brought down an entire newspaper chain Mm -hmm. and and now an industry you're telling me i just saw the other day that the new york times made something like a billion dollars just off subscriptions Mm -hmm. like the new york times was in the same place as the national post so what's the difference like my thing is this if you have a dude up top and there is like the internet is coming and you don't understand the internet, he is no longer merited or fit for his position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. But he's going to fail up and he failed and everybody knows he failed. Conrad Black is another example. <laughs> okay. He's not even mediocre. He's just, ugh, you know, <laughs> and yet, uh, this this ex-con keeps getting invited on panels to talk about stuff he has no idea about. Okay. He's a historian. You want to know white right mediocrity? I think of Jonathan Kay. That's some serious white <laughs> mediocrity. Um, Jonathan Kay, who's boasting on Twitter about how he would never send his kids to public school lest they be exposed to all manner. Of who yeah. also who well, also orders a Big Mac with no <laughs> lettuce or anything good. That was the best find. Um, I mean, I, just to bring it back to the pay equity thing, it's it's hard to know where to even begin to address that issue because it it cuts through so many ways. So in terms of racialized women and trans women, certainly. Um, indigenous women, the gap there, I think, was also somewhere around 50%. Um, like, a lot of that is is racism. But yes. it's also undervaluing certain areas of work. And like, there's, it's it's so complex. But it's undervalued because of the people who occupy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's sure. what I mean. Yeah, for so sure. So it still comes sure. back. Yeah, it still comes yeah. back to an, a, a, yeah, a discriminatory under underpinning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you're right. And the idea that... Um, you know, positions of power are reserved for men or elite white women mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. is exactly why we don't we don't really 
we're not innovative as a country. We're not trail, we don't have, we're so structured that whatever innovation comes out, and I'm, I'm using this as in terms of work, um, is too little and too late. And I find that there is no, there, the system itself does not allow for people who are not exactly like the Paul Godfreys or the Conrad Blacks to thrive. Mm-hmm. So this McLean's um, idea for the, the different pay scales of their magazine came from a 2016 uh, project that was done at the University of Queensland in Australia. Uh, they had a bake sale called the Gender Pay Gap Bake Sale, where they priced cupcakes higher for men than women to illustrate Australia's pay gap. There was also a video done in the UK about beers, um, mm-hmm. and then when men ordered a beer, part of it, the bartender drank a portion of it to, <laughs> to represent uh, the pay gap, and, but they still had to pay the same amount. Um, and so obviously in Australia for this bake sale, there was a huge social media backlash where people were saying, kill all women. Females are fucking scum. They should put, be put down as babies. And I want to rape these feminist cunts with their fucking baked goods. And it was this so horrific that it made international headlines. Like I can't even imagine what is going to happen. But, well, no, sorry. The comments as I mentioned earlier, is like people are saying boycott this magazine. I don't know that it's going to have such um, a strong backlash because a bake sale is a much more accessible audience than McLean's. Like people who are reading McLean's are of a certain education and socioeconomic Status. I don't know. Do you remember when McLean's used to say all sorts of racist shit about Muslims? Sure. And, I mean, I'm just saying they 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 part of their demographic is people who would engage on that level. Yeah. Um, but I think they're having an elevated discussion, and hopefully, people will meet them there. It's a lot easier to target a bake sale and say social justice warriors on campus are pushing this agenda. I think McLean's is sort of couched in legitimacy. Yes. Probably because of its whiteness and its like status in Canadian society and, and in, in media as one of the few, if only, a magazine aside from maybe the walrus that does this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. Eric, I know you gave me a look when I read some of those. Yeah, I, I'm sure. But, Aaron, these guys have mothers. Right? And sisters. So they could never be misogynist. <laughs> that's basically, that's what I was thinking. I am interested. What do you guys think about tying it to the Me Too movement? Because, like, they, they do make those connections. And I think it's, I mean, it, there's a lot to unpack there. And I don't think we fully appreciate our relationship with work. Um, I think that's part of capitalism is to make us not really reflect on that relationship and to be working towards a paycheck constantly and not fighting necessarily for our wages. Our wages are, are guided by what's, you know, these broader economic things. Um, so in terms of the Me Too movement and the link, like we're, you know, a lot of people are s- simply don't understand what their rights are in the workplace. 
it's shocking to me that so many people don't understand what an internal sexual harassment, sexual assault investigation process would look like in a workplace, um, or that they have reporting structures, or that employers have, you know, liability under different acts and codes and whatever else. Um, and so there's just like a huge disconnect between what workers' rights are, what they ought to be, and what we're aware of, and what we're allowed to like embrace. And yeah. it, it comes out in a lot of different ways. Yeah, to me, it, it ties a little bit more closely to uh, the Time's Up stuff rather than the Me Too stuff. I mean, they're, like, very similar. And there's definitely, like, yeah. of the Venn diagrams of the two, there's definitely yeah. an overlap. But I feel like the Time's Up focuses more on the workplace yeah. but the, and that know, type it, of inequity yeah. than the Me Too, which but is, I think... But it's all sex-based discrimination. Like sure. That's, that, like, that's the root of it. Um, and I think, you know, we're not... We're, we, you know, we've shut our minds off to the idea, I think, for the last, you know, 20 years about, well, I mean, the people have assumed that women have ascended, that women are s this educated group, and they've made it into workplaces, and that that's sufficient, and we sort of put the blinders on about what it actually means to meaningfully contribute in the workplace, and what employers have to do to enable that, um, and, and so you see that inequality. Um, some of the stats that McLean's did put forward is that where you, where you um, look at unionized workplaces and where people are either collectively bargaining or there, or there are more protections, you don't see that wage inequality there or not to the same degree. Um, of course, uh, there's always discriminate, like, you know, there's always privileging and hiring and how certain people get ahead over others, but it, it does help equalize things and once you cancel out for some of that stuff, you do see um, a narrowed gap. So there are ways to address it, but it, your workplace has to be um, open to a lot of changes. I would say that we, um, as a culture, I would say it's less capitalism and more neoliberalism in terms of the way we have corporatized our culture. Mm. And what that means is that um, the corporate structure is the be-all and end-all. And we, as a society, play into that all the time. Everything has to do with um, our job and a promotion and our next promotion. That's, you know, and getting a house and getting and, and in the right area code and so on and so forth. I feel as though we've commodified our own rights and it's come to the point where we don't know our rights anymore because we've been told that they are either unnecessary or that um, they are somehow threatening to our economic advancement. That's right, that's a really good point. Yeah, so, I, you know, I feel in terms of, of how we proceed, um, I really do think that we really need to start thinking and talking about what our governments and our sort of corporate masters owe us. And that's because the social contract died. And once the social contract died, we became corporate sycophants. And we became um, people who are, who now take up the values of a corporation mm -hmm. rather than exercising our own. Mm -hmm. We're not individuals. Mm -hmm. 
we're part of a plutocracy. Right. And you see that, it's interesting, you see that in um, some of the more newer forms of, of workplaces where they're, you know, people are expected to buy into the brand. It's a startup. We're all in this for this greater cause. And, oh, we don't need union protections or we don't need mm. to, to work together. We, we're working for this greater goal. We know that this, this uh, corporation espouses these values and we're going to, you know, rest assured, but be we're rested. Trust yeah, we're going to trust thing. in that and not, uh, and not challenge it. Um, and, and you're right, like, our, because our livelihoods are so linked. And you see that with the minimum wage discussion. Like, no, people are not I, – I think overall the, the change has been important. I think it's been generally well-received, but the backlash has been mm. very vocal and loud, and it, and it is rooted in this um, idea that, uh, like, people have lost sight of the fact of what we're even fighting for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So moving on, um, um, I will give a little bit of a trigger warning. We are going to talk about uh, sexual assault. So if that's not good for you, just skip ahead. So in September 2017, a woman and her two friends crossed paths with two plainclothes detectives. The woman was sitting in a parked car with her two friends when a van pulled up behind them, after which uh, two men exited the van, flashed their badges, and then started asking them questions. Uh, the... The friends had some weed in the front cup holder, and soon the detectives ordered the three occupants out of the car, where the detectives handcuffed the, the girl and told her friends, who were both young men, that they were free to go. She said that they then led her, who was a petite woman who was out just over five feet tall, into the back of the unmarked police van with tinted windows. Inside, the woman said the detectives took turns raping her in the back seat as the van cruised down the dark streets and as she sat handcuffed, crying, and repeatedly telling them no. Between assaults, she said the van pulled over so the cops could switch drivers. Less than an hour later, just a few minutes' drive from where it all began, the detectives dropped the woman off. Her name was Anna, on the side of the road, a quarter mile from a police station, according to surveillance footage. The cops made no arrests, issued no citation and filed no paperwork about the stop of the three friends. Hours later, the woman and her mother went to a hospital where she told nurses that two detectives had sexually assaulted her, according to hospital records. Semen was collected from Anna's, in Anna's rape kit, and it matched the DNA of detectives Eddie Martins, who was 37, and Richard Hall, 33, of the Brooklyn South Narcotics Unit. Both have since resigned from the force and have been charged with rape. However, in New York, there is no specific law stating that, is that it is illegal for police officers or sheriff's deputies in the field to have sex with someone in their custody. It is one of 35 states where armed law enforcement officers can evade sexual assault charges by claiming that such an encounter, from groping to intercourse, was consensual. Of at least 158 law enforcement officers charged since 2006 with sexual assault, sexual battery, or unlawful sexual conduct with someone under their control, at least 26 have been acquitted or had charges dropped based on the consent defense, according to the reporter's review of the Buffalo News database of more than 700 law enforcement officers accused of sexual misconduct. In recent years, some states have closed this loophole, applying to cops the same rules already in place nationwide for probation officers and prison and jail guards. Oregon, di Oregon did this in 2005, Alaska in 2013, and Arizona in 2015. Most states, however, have not, 
partly because few people realize this loophole exists and partially because it has been politically unpopular to push laws that target cops and anger their powerful unions. This is so fucked up. So following the corporatization, (laughs) um, so we've decided now that, because I see the police less as a public um, institution and more like a corporate entity. Um, And not in a value sense, not in in terms of the way it functions or in terms of... Right. It is, they are self-contained, they're powerful... And apparently, they can do no wrong. And once we have decided that tough on crime is the way to go, and we elect politicians who are tough on crime, they are the ones that have funded these police un- these pol- these police organizations to be as powerful as they are unchecked. And this is not only a U.S. problem. This happens in Canada all the time. The fact that I think last week we talked about the uh, the head of the Ottawa Police Union, mm-hmm. who just you know ta- made an a, a spurious connection between uh, the end of carding and the rise in shootings. Yeah, no evidence. There's he didn't even have any anecdotal evidence, and we're supposed to what take that as 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 truth? Yeah, I. I re- we really have to... Uh, the police are out of control. Let's be honest. We keep funding them. They have billion-dollar budgets. And now, due to the end of the Iraq-Afghanistan I- war, are heavily militarized. Where's the check- where are the checks and balances? Yeah, I mean, it's quite troubling. And as you said, there are a number, I mean, this happens all the time in Canada, but there are also a number of high-profile cases uh, similar to this that are happening now in London and Toronto. And, um, so it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not uncommon, but um, the idea that there is this consent loophole, I mean, I don't even know how you would argue that the person was detained and in the back of the car. And it seems like that has been given so much legi- like legitimacy. Can, can we just pause here and imagine what this looks like? They're like, okay, cool. I've just arrested this person and they're trying to seduce me. And I say, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to fuck them in the backseat of this car. And they totally wanted to do it. Like, yeah, there's nothing sexier than being arrested. Like, fuck off. Well, and I mean, there has to be some... Some and, and and there is certainly in the Canadian Criminal Code around like coercion, um, and certainly yeah. um, you know w- w- like fortunately I think we do have in our sexual assault provisions um, where there is that relation where there is that power dynamic. Um, I think p- police would 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 just be captured by that alone, assuming the events did happen. But yeah, the idea that that coercive like there's a huge coercive element to it that I don't. It's like taking that you can't accept that consent has been given under duress like certainly that would vitiate any any sort of consent whether it was offered like in those circumstances um but yeah that police could make like you know that anyone who wears a uniform can make that statement and then also argue that they're working to like you know serve and protect is is pretty upsetting it makes you really question like to me the the other larger picture is and these are the people that we trust to then go and investigate um, you know, sexual mm-hmm. assault crimes, I really don't trust that. And 
I mean, we have no reason to because we, we've so much data has shown that uh, police actually often look away, um, ignore and don't press charges um, yep. in a lot of sexual assault cases. Yeah, particularly, uh, or if deem them unfounded. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and I, it's, I know that, like, there are people on my Facebook feed who are cops, and they always post things that are very pro-police, and to even, like, put this up as, like, a thing that had happened, they would refuse to believe it. Mm -hmm. They would say, well, they were fired, and they lost their jobs, therefore justice has been served. No, it hasn't. That's not justice. So Which is ironic because they don't use that argument in so most other so situations. For, so um, why is it that cops are held to a lower standard? That's it, that, I mean, they should... They are given yeah, power. Yeah. They're given the ultimate power of safety yeah. and of actual freedom, like yeah. physical confinement is a removal of your right to freedom, yeah. okay? So once they have... and. You want to talk about ruined lives and and mm -hmm. and um and due process they ruin lives mm -hmm. mm. right, but nobody seems to be willing to even open or broach the subject because we're all supposed to think that cops are there to protect us, yeah, they are not the reason that police forces sprang up. In at least in the South, was to control runaway slaves. Mm -hmm. In the in uh, in Canada, it was to control the indigenous population. They are there for white people. That's how they were formed. So when people say the justice system isn't working, yeah, it is. It's working perfectly. Yeah, it's working for the people who it serves. That's right. If we want to change that, then. We're going to have to do something about that because uh, the cops have too much power, too much, too much unchecked power. Mm. And the oversight is by other cops. And then, you know what the sick thing is? And then, w like, the amount of cops in the marijuana business right now is oh disgusting. Right. The fact that there hasn't been a national outcry in that, that's corrupt to me. Mm -hmm. And so... Nobody seems to be talking about it. No, nobody seems, and there's been very few reports on it. It's mainly been done by Vice, mm -hmm. yeah. basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we do treat them as if it's like a, this untouchable, like, you know, strata where you can't critique cops lest you like question the whole structure. And it's like, yeah, well, you're right. We should hold them to like the highest standard. We've given them all of these privileges, all these exemptions. They're the only people authorized to use force. Like they're you know, again, confine people, like, apply apply the law in, in like, everyday application. Um, so why not hold them to this higher standard? Why shouldn't every citizen, every time they see a cop acting at a turn, be like, you're not representing me, you're not doing what's, what's like, I mean, to me, I say abolish it all, but, <laughs> but, like, at the very least, we should be coming from this place of... Well, at the very least, like, you have to go through a background check and all of these other things, but when you want to become a police officer, so why not continue doing that as police officers, mm -hmm. like, while people are in the force? Mm -hmm. um, That's a good point. You know, like, police officers should not be reviewing other police officers in any way, shape, or form. It has to be, a pu like, a public, publicly-led yeah. process that has ombuds people from society at large. And it's a process that has yeah. teeth. Yes, mm. exactly. Right? Yeah, real consequences. Because we put together yeah. all these processes, You're but right. they have no teeth mm -hmm. and no funding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which means it's just bullshit. Until you're ready to fund that bitch, 
then I start believing mm. you. But there's a lot of lip service and no action. Yeah. Which is very Canadian. I'm really sour about Canada recently. <laughs> and I'm feeling that. And, and you know, we're going to find out why really fucking soon. Yep. Survivors of sexual assault in the military launched a Canada-wide class action suit this week, which is in its early phases. The federal government, for its part, has filed a motion to strike the class action, arguing that the government has, quote, no duty to create policies to prevent sexual harassment or sexual assault, which are already prohibited by the Canadian Human Rights Act. Veteran Amy Graham, one of the lead plaintiffs in the case, said the Liberal government's attempts to stop the lawsuit contradict Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's public support for victims of sexual misconduct. When asked to comment, uh, Justin Trudeau said that he has put the Justice Justice Department lawyers on notice, stating this argument was, quote, of concern to me, and I've asked the Justice Minister to follow up with the lawyers to make sure that we argue things that are consistent with this government's philosophy. The lawsuit was brought forward by three former female service members who alleged that they were harassed or assaulted while serving and are seeking $800 million in damages for themselves and hundreds of others, both men and women, with similar experiences. I found this really troubling that they would advance that, but also not at all surprising. I mean, I think we lose sight of the fact that a lot of uh, lawsuits that we challenge that go against the government um, I mean, they're named every day in suits across mm-hmm. the country, and they often do defend them from this very hard-lined position. Um, I think this is just a shitty argument to say that they don't have a duty of care to people who are directly reporting and um, are employees, essentially, of the Canadian military. Yeah, like I get the government doesn't want to pay $800 million out in lawsuits. And while I, I am surprised at Justin Trudeau's response and the response of the government, I'm also kind of not because we talked about how totally. Justin Trudeau can s- comes across as like the Taylor Swift of feminism. Yeah. Well, I mean, what he's saying is that they are going to adjust their strategy, but I think we have to like they're going to adjust the language that they use. Yeah. Like, you know, they will have to advance what our positions in in court in this proceeding as the Justice Department, as the AG, that politically would not fly. Um, and how do you reconcile those two personalities of the state and of the government? Uh, on the one hand, trying to do this over, like prudent, hyper-conservative managing of their case files, and then on the other hand, governing in this like overtly progressive way where they're saying they want to increase funding to Indigenous children, they want to uh, recognize sexual harassment in the workplace and, and protect women, um, but you know, they don't necessarily want to pay for it through legal recourse. It's kind of, it's interesting. Hmm. Um. The fact that they don't want to pay for it, I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is just yet another receipt of the Trudeau government being full of shit. I I don't know how they can say they don't have a duty of care when the military is not like any other job. It's not as though you go into work and then go home. The base is your home. That's right. Mm-hmm. So how they say they don't have a duty of care is laughable to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is laughable. And to think that he can fix his mouth to say some shit like that, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not really... Well, I'm, I gave Justin Trudeau his grace period, and, and then I was like, fuck this shit. Because if you're saying that you have no duty of care... I would assume that that means that you are not responsible for the environment. 
I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- I, I'm 100% clear why they're advancing this argument. The, this, the lawsuit is at its certification phase, so they're trying to prove, show to the court that there is that this merits a, a class, a class action. action. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's in its early days, and frankly, they don't need to be like objecting to everything. I think they can show some goodwill and at least accept that it's a class of people, but whatever. Um, but the duty of care argument, you're right. Like they're they're housed by the government. They're, they're living. Fed by they're the fed government. by the government. They they don't ever take their you know uniform off in theory. Like mm-hmm. they're, yeah. they're living under the code. Yes. That's imposed on military um, officials. That's and, and, right. And you know officers. So they're never they're never not representing the government. So why isn't the government then corris- like have a corresponding responsibility to them? Well, especially because like if you're t- thinking about bureaucrats in Ottawa and them working in offices or quote unquote their ivory towers then you know they they are treated completely differently and if there's an assault in the workplace that would be taken very seriously mm-hmm. but the military is somehow different well and and uh, to use that uh, hypothetical if you went on a conference for work for the government and something happened at the hotel room on a sanctioned trip they would also i uh, i would yes. i would argue they would be found also liable for yes. s- for whatever happened if the other person was some also an employee. And that's what we're talking about. These are the facts. Um, yeah, they could have saved a lot of face and showed some good goodwill by not advancing arguments like that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Trudeau is now directing. Like, I don't know how much he can direct the Justice Department to adjust their arguments to politically. I mean, I'm sure justice lawyers won't be keen on being managed in that way either. Um, because I'm sure they have their own tactical approaches, but sometimes what's tactical uh, in a pl- in a political jurisdiction, like in a political arena, is not it's a is ministerial not, uh, decision. It's not yeah. tactical in a political sense. Then that's a ministerial decision. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, to think that you're telling me that this minister, our justice minister, doesn't see a problem with this, I, I'm wondering why she's there then. Mm-hmm. Sorry. But, yeah. But th- I mean, yeah. And there's so many cases like this. I'm sure that if we looked closer, we would be like, why is the government advancing this and this argument when on the other hand on this trade issue or duty to consult with indigenous people or like there's so many areas there you see these contradictions played out in the courtroom. Um, yeah. Speaking of things that the justice minister might take issue with. Um, it was announced late last night in Canada that um, Gerald Stanley was acquitted in the murder of Colton Bushi. And this is a story that Erica referenced briefly in our last episode. Um, But basically, the story goes, Mr. Stanley, a 56-year-old farmer, was charged with secondary murder in the death of Mr. Colton Bushi, a 22-year-old Cree man from the Red Pheasant First Nation. Uh, In August... 2016, uh, Mr. Bushi, his girlfriend, and three others set out for a day of swimming. They ended, the day ended in tragedy with mis- when, when Mr. Bushi was shot at close range by Mr. Stanley, who claimed it was a freak accident. The Crown said his si- story simply didn't add up. Mr. Bushi and his friends woke up that morning on the Red Pheasant First Nation, about 90 p- minutes north of Saskatoon in Saskatchewan. The group inca- included Eric Menchance, Kiora Watuni, Belinda Jackson, and Cassie Cross Whitstone. On the way home, Mr. Cross Whitstone was at the wheel of the car when it hit a culvert and punctured a tire. He pulled into a farm where the men, where the men tried and failed to steal a truck. They then headed for, for Mr. Stanley's property. 
Mr. Stanley and his son, Sheldon, who is now 28, were building a fence when they heard the Ford Escape pull into the yard. They ran to see what was happening, shouting as they went. They saw two men jump into the Escape, which quickly backed up and started to drive away. Sheldon Stanley said he was angry and swung a hammer that smashed into the, the Escape's windshield. As the vehicle drove away, with one tire still missing, it veered into Mr. Stanley's car, crashed, and came to a halt a few meters away. Mr. Stanley said he saw his son run toward the house, and afraid for his son's safety, he went into his shed to grab a semi-automatic handgun. Ms. Jackson testified that she heard Mr. Stanley tell his son to go inside and get a gun. Then Mr. Stanley went to the shed and, had a f and a few moments later approached the vehicle. Ms. Jackson said that he fired the gun, hitting Mr. Bushy in the back of the head. Mr. Stanley, in his testimony, said that after he fired the warning shot, he suddenly feared his, feared his wife was underneath the escape and sprinted to check on her. As he knelt down, he heard the engine revving and ran around to the driver's side to reach in with his left hand, which was holding the magazine, to turn off the engine. It was at that moment, he said, that the gun went off accidentally, and he said he never actually pulled the trigger. There's so much to... Well, that's this. bullshit. It's it, it may it's utter nonsense, and it actually, based on the evidence that was admitted at the hearing, yes, there is no truth to that theory. That yes, their gun was fully functioning. There yes. is no way it would have wrong, like accidentally fired, but for him pulling the trigger. Um, and there, there, there was just there's no reason he would have shot two, like you know, <laughs> warning shots, and then proceeded to shoot yet again. Um, but like without some sort of in, like intention or, or aim, and the like, and the the theory that they tried to advance, the idea that um, you know there was hanging the hanging fire theory, so called, was actually what led to the fatal shot, um, was also disproven by ballistics. What experts. was sorry? The idea that there is like this the the misfire was what. Yes. Shot him. That there was no aim aim involved in it. And, and I would like to know. How you can shoot a man at the back of That's his right. head at point blank range and call it an accident. No, motherfucker. That's on purpose. Because mm -hmm. no accident has that good a shot. Yeah. Point blank range, yeah. just behind the left ear, really? Yeah. In the back of the head? It's a fucking execution. At the very least, it's manslaughter. Very. Yeah. yeah at the very least. And I really do think it's a watershed moment in this country. And it's a watershed moment because it's going to out those who it's going to out the racists from it's one of those stories that's like, yep, it your opinion on it will lead people to believe on which side of a racial argument you are. Mm -hmm. The story is much bigger than um, a f uh, an indigenous kid that got killed. This story is like George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin, and that watershed moment. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be really interesting to see. And uh, as an aside, I'm not using that comparison to take away from indigenous lives. I'm just saying that what we see south of the border is very much present here, mm -hmm. even though one of the point. actors may be, um, like, the communities are different. But the struggles are similar. Yes, absolutely. And, and so um, 
I don't believe that uh, Mr. Stanley accidentally killed him. I think he did it on purpose. I will say that. Also, last week we talked about Tina Fontaine. Mm -hmm. And we talked about Tina Fontaine and why she was chosen by, um, I can't remember the name of the 55-year-old man that took her. But anyway, the fact of the matter is that indigenous lives don't matter. They do not matter to white people they sure as hell don't matter to the white structures that have made this country. And so these people have been living, have been oscillating between fear and anxiety and um, injustice and everything else that falls from that. I mean, I, I, this hit me hard last night, and I haven't been hit this hard in a minute. It really did. I weep for this country because, in in my opinion, it's very much the 1950s Jim Crow Alabama. That's what I see. Mm -hmm. And ev and this is to say that even America is further ahead on these mm -hmm. issues than we are. Well, certainly in rural communities like in Saskatchewan, there is like a very big divide. Um, I think if this was a, it was something tried maybe in an urban setting, not necessarily, but might have gotten to a different outcome. But where how people live, um, and it's it yeah. is quite segregated in those communities. And to be tried by an all white jury, no less, um, I think um, also uh, colors uh, colors this this verdict as well. And I, I I think we are in Canada a little bit behind in this type of discussion because of our gun laws, because guns aren't prevalent in a lot of homes and so you're not going to get as many kind of racialized violence because well, they're just but but you do get other guns. forms of violence yes so whether so i mean i meant like yeah. this specific type yeah. of conversation yeah. yeah but i mean the the commonalities in this case the case um uh you know cases of missing and murder it's all it's all man it's different kinds of violence um that's rooted in hate and I think that, like that, it, that is the crux of the issue. The gun, the gun part of it makes me extremely uneasy. Um, and it is interesting to see how uh, white white farmers from that community are responding to this with with an eye to property and an eye to their rights um, that aren't actually founded in Canadian law. There's certainly no defense, and nor did uh, nor did the defense even argue. They didn't argue self defense. They just argued that they didn't meet the definition of second degree or even manslaughter. Um, so, but it's funny. And he got off with that flimsy yeah. defense. Yeah, and people people have taken it to, to mean uh, that you, you know, because that, well, in the closing, which was, it seemed like it was playing on a lot of these uh, sympathies of the white jurors who could have easily see themselves in the place um, of Stanley uh, and, and saying, you know, well, you know, how would you feel if, if you were in Coach Upon? It was a chaotic moment. So he, he triggered the two warning shots, but the third shot was, was a mistake. It was a tragic accident, but there's nothing in this scenario he could have done differently. And it's like, yeah, he could have reacted not in fear. Like, he could have, like, been more measured. No one else there was armed but him. Like, it could Were have they not driving off the property? There, yeah, and if, if it's a question of stolen property, then call the police. You, like, 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, yeah, they re like, and th that reaction was completely unmeasured, but in the minds of jurors who can so easily put themselves in his place and say, well, if it was me, I think I would have gone off. And, and, and wanna, that's, and, you know, I he shouldn't lose his, you know, his livelihood because, and his freedom because he reacted uh, in this chaotic moment. Mm -hmm. I would like to pick up on that jury <laughs> and ask why the fuck was there an all-white jury in this case? Absolutely. What kind yeah. of 1950s Jim Crow shit is that? And the thing is, the defense sis systematically right. picked off, all the, picked off yeah. all the indigenous jurors and the judge let it happen. Yep. The judge let that happen. Didn't you see a similarity here? Wasn't there? And I want to ask. They get a lot of leeway in jury selection to, to but but without, but they without, can't do it. There is a based limit on, on how race. often they can do it. Ex yeah. But they can't do it based on race. So if everybody that you're excluding is a racialized person, if if you're the judge, wouldn't that dawn in on you? If you're the crown, wouldn't that dawn on you? Yeah. Where? Why was that allowed? I'm looking at you because you're no, the lawyer. I know. <laughs> and, like, we have a right to be tried by a jury of our peers. I mean, look, yeah. I would never take a jury trial. That's, like, my own personal. I don't trust 12 anything. Like, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't put my hands you're in You're like these dumb motherfuckers. Canadians, I'm not going to lie. Uh, it's tough because it's such a technical thing, and I, I don't necessarily – I don't think a judge would have come to the same conclusion – uh, they would have taken a lot longer to digest all of the evidence. I mean, I imagine judges also render shitty decisions all the time, um, but they have to put their decision in writing, and it's a lot easier to appeal an illogically written decision by a judge and point to its natural. So then why didn't the Crown force that? Um, well, the, the jury, yeah, I mean, they, they selected. You, you, I mean, how yeah. did that, how was that allowed to happen? This is yeah, my question. Yeah, yeah, and but there may be room to, to challenge some of the directions the judge gave and also the whatever um an all-white yeah. jury in saskatchewan yeah. seriously seriously like you have to try to and do that and they had people pulled so sometimes what happens is you don't get people from the role the jury like randomly selected for jury selection so you may have uh, like the people who present are actually not a representative, but they did have people, and they vetoed yeah, they them. They did. Like that, they like vetoed every yeah. single indigenous yeah, yeah. person. Yeah, and it's, apparently, it's what the fuck is wrong with the crown? I, I, I the, there are a lot of mistakes made by the crown in this case. They, they suck in their closing. Just based on my reading of it, and I wasn't there and, and reading some of the commentary. It seems like they did not go to bat on the manslaughter piece of it, and they kind of rested it on this all or nothing idea that he had to have like fully intended and like and. And where they should have played up the ballistics data and and like leaned into this idea that he would have had to pull the trigger even if he had no intention of aiming to, to kill in that moment. But I think yeah, they lost sight of what the objective was in their case. Um, I yeah. I'm just I'm just I for so, this case just hit me. Yeah, it's just one of those cases that was just like that, and I'm from Alberta, and I'm like. Somebody tweeted me um, last night and was like, I am so ashamed to be from Saskatchewan. I said, girl, I'm from Alberta. They would have done the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm feeling, and I think probably that's why it hit me is because I'm like, this is basically my backyard. And I pretty much know that Alberta would have done the same. I think it could have happened in a lot of parts of this country, unfortunately. Yeah. Shit, it could have happened in Toronto. What am I saying? It's true. Yeah. 
But no, it's really tragic, and people are going to be in mourning for some time and feeling feeling this injustice in their day-to-day lives. I mean, especially when we talk about the incarceration rates of Indigenous people in this country. Um, and, I mean, not to, not to make it too... Um, too reductionist, but it, you know, if the roles were reversed, I think you'd have a really hard time proving to a jury that an indigenous person acted, uh, you know, accidentally in a similar fact scenario in shooting a white person. I don't think any that theory would have ever flown. That and how dare they? Because the life of a white person is more valuable in this country than anybody else. I guess what 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 has also hit me is that. Oh wow. This country is so far to go. I didn't realize we were this behind. It's it's a, it's mm. a I lot didn't of realize it's very disheartening. It is. I didn't realize that we were this backward. I didn't realize that we are basically a two generations behind the US. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not quite out in the open, our racism in the same way. And I think there are there are some people who believe that we are at a point of reconciliation and decolonization no. and that may be true for some of us, but it's not true for the majority of this country, and it's not true for huge populations, and especially in rural areas. No. Um, yeah. So it'll, it'll definitely be interesting to see how this plays out um, in concert with the Liberal government's reconciliation agenda. Now we're moving on to rent and receipts, and this is where we each bring a story or tweet storm or something to chat about uh, to share with the others. So, Amy, do you want to kick it off? Sure. So I'm not 100% sure. This is something that I really want to go in on. I feel like this guy has too many followers. They're going to come for me, but fuck it. Um, YOLO. (laughs) So my contribution for today is uh, Steve Pakin's uh, Facebook apology, non-apology. Steve Pakin, the host of TVO's. The Agenda, a well-known and apparently well-respected uh, debate moderator for federal and provincial elections and a huge media personality, uh, some would say. Um, I he- just, I, that's <laughs> an interjection. I didn't know TVO was Ontario's public broadcaster. Yeah. Because, well, I've only lived in Ontario for five years. You're from BC. Yeah, I'm from You're BC. You're excused. And I also don't have a TV. Sure. So I was like, oh, that's yeah. what this is. Because I keep seeing it on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh. That's so interesting. I mean, I definitely grew up with TVO. They played all the, like, kids shows when you were little. Like, you'd watch TVO in the morning. Oh, yeah. okay. Pokeroo and... Polka Dot Door. door. Yeah. Polka Dot yeah. Door, yeah. yeah. Anyway, as you were. Context. Um, so, yeah, so Steve Bacon uh, is another man who's now been named in a sexual harassment complaint uh, brought forward by former uh, Toronto mayoral candidate Sarah Thompson, who named him in, uh, actually didn't name him, but referred to him in vague terms as a TV host who made a sexual advance at her, uh, at her towards her in a meeting um, some years back uh, as she was campaigning to for the mayoral ship of Toronto. And she's in, a, her, according to her blog post, she's sitting in a meeting uh, with him. They went out to lunch. She had recently appeared on the show. She had brought her assistant. And she and her male assistant were sitting at lunch with Steve Bacon, and he turned to her and said, um, hey, so, uh, you know, are we going to have sex or, or, you know, we're going to have sex later kind of thing. And she's taken aback, stepped away, and went to call her campaign manager, who incidentally is the son of John Tory. George Tory spoke to him about it. He told her, uh, initially he said, I can't believe you would take this meeting on your own 
And she's like, no, no, my assistant was sitting right next to me. He pretty much spat his coffee out when he heard the comment. And, uh, of course, then her campaign manager is quite shocked, tells her to leave just to exit the meeting station somewhere else to be. And the assistant stays and sits with Steve Pakin. And he asks Steve, oh, so does that line ever work for you? To which Steve Pakin allegedly replies, well, 50% of the time. So those are the allegations. Uh, TVO hearing this uh, in an email from Sarah Thompson to them. So in her public post, she doesn't name him. She submits an email to them. Uh, they or, or possibly to Steve Pakin as well. And they decide, we're going to investigate this. We're going to get a third-party investigator. But we're going to let this guy keep hosting TVO's The Agenda, um, which he does. And since then, um, you know, people have had different reactions to, to this story than, than in some cases they think there is. Um, he, you know, he's seen as um, quite, uh, quite reputable and, and credible in a lot of ways. And Sarah Thompson, I don't think, um, is seen as favorably in, the pu in public opinion. Uh, and uh, Why is that? You know, well, first of all, she's a white woman who has dreads. So she's lost a lot of credibility oh. with me oh. a, wh a while ago. Um, mm. But I'm yeah. not questioning her story because apparently she's got two witnesses. And I feel like, you know, at the very least, let's see where it goes. But TVO, you know, lets Steve Pakin keep his, keep his gig. He's not suspended. He's on air every night on the agenda. So then he decides to post this Facebook message. My turn is what it's called. It's in cap locks. It's written Donald Trump-esque. And he goes on to say, you know, I was gobsmacked by the allegations. They're 100% they're false. Um, he, you know, he acknowledges that TBO let him keep his anchor chair. He appreciates the vote of confidence. They did the right thing by calling an independent third-party investigator. And you're like, okay, this is all great. Um, and then he just goes off and says, you know, I've interviewed 20,000 people in my life. I've had 35-year journalism career. I've moderated six leaders' debates, um, presumably a sign that during key moments in our country's history, the people seeking the highest office in our land think I'm impartial and respectable. Um, and he says the Me Too movement is too important to undermine with spurious allegations. The only good thing about this is receiving the huge number of emails, phone calls from people who believe me and are prepared to say so publicly. And then he uh, eventually goes on to say, I don't mean Sarah Thompson harm, uh, but Sarah, you and I both know the incidences you described never happened. It's a complete fiction. To be clear, I did not have sex, request, uh, imply, or joke about having sex with you. Sadly, in this day and age, too many people are going to believe that lie. I'm mortified that in people's lives I've lost the presumption of innocence, which he doesn't actually have, that I previously enjoyed, but I did not do these things. You've defamed me, Sarah. I have no idea why, but you have, and I simply cannot let that stand. The quest to reclaim my reputation, which you've tried to destroy, begins now. I look forward to vindication. Um, earlier in the same man, he says, this is crafted without the help of lawyers. And I'm like, God help you get some fucking lawyers. Um, <laughs> first of all, everything in that statement undermines any claim that he's been defamed. He's shown that his employer let him keep his position. He continues to be on the air. He's being investigated by a third party. He's received an outpouring of support from the public. And every op-ed that's been written or any commentary on this allegation has been glowing in its, in its view of Steve Pakin and his reputation and credibility. So I really don't understand why he thinks there's a definite, like I know why he thinks there's a defamatory action here. And I'm sure a lawyer will take some money and I'm sure TBO might <laughs> pursue that claim. But 
you haven't been defamed if your reputation hasn't suffered as a consequence of a lie. People can say all manner of things, and they may be found to be defamatory, but really there's no corresponding damage. He didn't lose anything. I think, a like, actually, you know, going on his Facebook page, it's people posting pictures of them with Steve Pakin, boasting how wonderful he is, how grateful they are for him. Mm -hmm. um, if, any, if anything, I mean, it's been a boost to his ego, he says. He's done famously as a result of this allegation. God. To say nothing of the fact that, of course, truth is a defense to defamation. And if Sarah Thompson, and this isn't a criminal standard. This is Sarah Thompson on the balance of probability advancing a truth. And a court can very easily find that she was truthful in her recollection of those events, even if it may not be the same recollection he has. Anyway, so to say on the one hand that he supports the Me Too movement and it shouldn't be plundered in this way, and go, to go off and to use such vindictive language um, and to use a platform that he has and his name and fame uh, to further that message um, and perpetuate this myth that there's, you know, no end of false accusations out there, I think is really troubling. He could have said nothing. He has his platform. He could just ho put his head down and host his show and continue to receive his fan mail. <laughs> but why would he do that when this is such a glorifying <sighs> watershed moment in his career? But so, yeah. so, I mean, I, so cynical. I think because <laughs> I don't trust those motherfuckers. I don't trust white men in power. I don't trust, well, it's, 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 I don't even know if I trust them and I probably don't trust them at all, to be mm -hmm. honest. And this is the thing, Steve <laughs> Pagan ha already has a sort of brand, right? He is the harbinger of truth or the holder of truth and justice or whatever the fuck. He's like a superhero. He's basically. like, he's, he's basically like, um, public news royalty sure. and um, when people think of public television and public radio and in the government trust and so on the people who are the faces of that I'm sure tend to be more trustworthy the other thing too is that TVO is free you don't need a cable package for it so everybody can see it except for Aaron who doesn't have a TV yeah <laughs> <laughs> but there is online Sure. sure. <laughs> but the point is that he already comes in with this, um, and I'll use the word reputation in quotes, because whether or not he's earned it, I don't know. You know, I think Charlie Rose was kind of the same way because he was on public television, because he interviewed all these people. People are like, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. Um... In terms of how this rolled out, um, this guy is pretty media savvy. Like, like have they found the um, the assistant yet? Because aren't they looking for the assistant? Uh, there's one. I think she had two. One person wasn't there. The other one they can't find, or they haven't been able to reach. Okay. It's a dated story, to be fair. It's been a number of years. Yes. Right. Okay. So, in other words, there presumably were two other people there to corroborate her story, which is probably why she felt that she could, you know, put this uh, story forward. But um, I also wonder how much, how many of, like, how many other women has he done this to? Yeah. 
That's my question. Because if he did it to one, he did it to many. Well, I don't know if I'm someone who was assaulted by Steve Pakin or harassed after seeing that statement and seeing how people are so quick to go to his defense, if I would want to come forward to be the target of their derision. Well, that's the other thing. And what if you get doxxed? That's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is, has a huge deterring effect. And I think, if anything, statements like this are what undermine the movement, not so-called false allegations. Um, and you know what? The idea, too, that, you know... Even if, even if this story doesn't come to fruition in terms of a founded sexual harassment complaint, doesn't mean that it should cast um, you know, a shadow on the rest of the movement. Harassment, and I think we all need to start bracing ourselves for the outcomes of some of these harassment investigations because they're not all going to come out um, in favor, uh, in the way that we expect them to. They require people to go and act as witnesses and yep. to give their experiences uh, to the investigators and unless people come forward, an investigator could say, you know, we don't have enough here, or what we have here doesn't paint a clear picture, so we're going to say it's unfounded. doesn't mean that the underlying event didn't happen or wasn't experienced in that way by the woman reporting it, but we have to, we, I think as feminists and people doing this work, have to start bracing ourselves for how are we going to address when that happens and making, making sure that we make a distinction between a false allegation and an allegation that's not founded for, you, you know, technical, you know, reasons, technical or reasons or you know, it's too old, no one remembers it, everyone who goes talks to the investigator just doesn't remember, there's nothing in writing, you know, like things like that would make it less like, uh, you know, m make it a bit harder to prove, but doesn't, doesn't undercut the women who are coming forward and saying, I experienced this in the workplace, and here are ways we could improve that. So I will go next. Um, my story this week is uh, a story coming from San Francisco. So the San Francisco District Attorney, George Gascon, said that he will expunge and dismiss thousands of misdemeanor and felony marijuana convictions for those sentenced prior to the legalization of marijuana in California, even if those prior convictions didn't those with prior convictions didn't file a petition to have their record expunged and they will do this for cases going back as far as 1975 um so uh california le recently legalized marijuana uh which was known as proposition 64 which enables those with past convictions to petition a court to recall or dismiss their case but in san francisco only 232 petitions have been filed as of September 2017, and across the state of California, only 4,885 petitions were filed uh, by that time, uh, according to the Drug Policy Alli Alliance, which is one of the organizations uh, that helped write Proposition 64. Um, the process, however, of filing a petition is kind of discriminatory in itself because it requires filing paperwork, it requires a fee, or even retaining an attorney uh, which can preclude vulnerable populations like minorities, like low-income people, from actually participating. And so it's these populations that are also disproportionately impacted by felony and mister misdemeanor drug convictions. So the fact that they, those convictions are getting expunged with no petition required is huge. And I think that it will, well, I, my hope is that it will help these uh, marginalized populations um, in their quality of life going forward. And it's also recognizing that culturally we're understanding that marijuana is less of an issue. 
Well, thank you for this feel-good story. <laughs> I think we needed it. Uh, I am so impressed with San Francisco right now and California as a whole. But California has always been more progressive. Um, Even their Republicans believe in climate change. I know. <laughs> Dude, the Republicans are progressive in California. Well, they have to be. Like, they get so many wildfires. They get droughts. <laughs> like, their weather is just very That's right. extreme. Their experience, uh, yeah, brings Experiential them learning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and according to the movie Chinatown, water has always been a political issue in California. So there. There's some I have seen that movie, by the way. Did you see Faye Dunaway's hats? I love them. She's the hat queen. Anyway, was. Anyway, she's still alive, but you know. <laughs> I'm just saying she's not the hat queen anymore. Anyway, so um, what is... So Canada is going yeah. through a... Ooh. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is why I raised this. Yeah. is because we are oh. going through a very similar thing here in Canada. Okay, take it away. I mean, what we're so, going through a similar thing, but are we like, are we even well, talking about in that, it? In that we are looking, well, we'll be down the, the road legalizing <sighs> marijuana. Yeah, it's not even down the road. It's like next year it's, or not even end of this month. Like, it's like, there's so it's basically it's, six it's basically months. Here. First of all, <laughs> like, let's back it up. Let's back it up. No, let's it's five up. months. First of all, well, it's been decriminalized. It's not quite sure. legal. Yes. So the fact that we don't have an answer for the people who already have records and have been charged is all it's like we're already s severely late. Yes. And no one has like seems to me has turned their minds to this because it doesn't have the same political capital that addressing legalization for everybody else does. Yeah. Um, and and like that's super troubling. Yeah. So uh, apparently, well, now it's going to be delayed is what they're saying, but. The commitment was by the federal government in Canada to legalize marijuana by July 1st of this year. Um, it's now going to be delayed. We don't really know how long, just because government, I guess. Um, it's going to be delayed? Yeah. And we don't indefinitely? No, like no, no. It's just, like, slower. It's just government is slow. So will it be... <laughs> my question is, will it be legal on July 1st or not? Uh, it's well, not think. entirely illegal. Yeah. Okay, but that's not my point. It's yeah, not legal it's not, either. Yeah, Correct. It's not legal. So it won't be legal by July 1st. Correct. On July the 1st. The other thing that irks me, oh, I just Oh, that on, sneaky is, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> did like, anybody know this? Well, I you did, guys this knew This was that. news to me that, that it's delayed. But the other thing, just to pile on here to what they're not doing, like what they are doing is still going after... The, Ill the illegal shops and doing raids. Yes. And it's like we are in this, like, limbo sort of. And, like, yeah, those people places don't maybe have the right papers or whatever, but it's, like, all money grab. And yet, like, that's, like, that's where resources are going and no resources are going to the, like, critical thinking of, like, how do we actually deal with people's convictions. Yeah, so... And records and, yeah. Since it's been, tech like, socially and technically kind of decriminalized, um, the government has said that they're not going to be expunging any of those records between or charges between that point and the legalization period. And they're not even going to go back mm -hmm. further than that. So, yeah, we're in this weird limbo kind of gray area where it's decriminalized, but some things aren't. 
and we're going to punish those people and we're going to still show that we're quote hard on drugs and that things are bad but then one day it's going to switch and it's all going to be fine I mean it, it's completely discriminatory that on the what happened was there was a critical mass of white people who said we want legalization and we want to vote on this issue and you know this particular drug should be socially acceptable but no one is talking about the other period of time where we looked at particular communities that we over policed and have also different cultural affiliations associations with that with marijuana with that drug in particular and penalize them and socially condemn them and ostracize them and then imprison them for you know very like what now is going to be completely legal and i don't understand how you can't reconcile that this the, the discriminatory effect of that like of that policy moving forward it again when you have the cops having like stakes in mar like economic stakes mm -hmm. or financial stakes in marijuana like production and distribution it was corrupt from the start yeah so i just i just don't know why canada who's a progressive country in theory just hasn't quite caught up in all of the same ways that california has I mean, yeah. California is bigger than Canada. Well, and, and let's talk about, like, the social impacts of people who have to live with these charges on their record, right? Yeah. They and can't get a job. They can't vote for some and what people. It, yeah, and what, well, they, I mean, they can vote here, but, sure. you know, but they can't meaningfully participate in certain types of work. Uh, there's, there's certainly a stigma that attaches to it. Uh, and, and I mean, it, it's a huge, um, it's a huge weight, and it's felt again in a disproportionate and discriminatory way by certain, uh, certain more vulnerable groups and, and certain um, identities in this country, mainly Indigenous people and Black Canadians who have been over policed, um, and policed entirely differently, and held to a completely different standard. And we're going to keep perpetuating that. Yeah. All right, Erica, what do you got for us? So my rent and receipts is a Canadian, it's very can conscious, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so Chatelaine wrote an article about Caroline Mulrooney. And basically, if you don't know who she is, she is the daughter of former Prime Minister Brian Mulrooney. Um, so basically the fall of the conservative, the PC party, so the progressive conservative party. In Ontario. In Ontario, Patrick Brown, who was forced to resign amid allegations of sexual misconduct, has basically prompted a lightning fast leadership race to be held before the June 7th provincial election. So far, three candidates have stepped forward to replace Brown. Christine Elliott, Doug Ford, and political newcomer Caroline Murphy. M Mulrooney. I keep calling her Murphy for some reason. Sorry. Although she lacks political experience, Mulrooney has a formidable resume in her own right. She's a lawyer and businesswoman who graduated from Harvard and NYU's law school. She took a leave from her job as the vice president of investment firm Bloomberg Sen Inc. last year to become a candidate for the riding of York Simcoe. To leap from first-time candidate to leadership contention is bold, but Mulrooney looks like a strong candidate. 
Mulrooney possesses a blue deep, uh, deep blue chip resume with degrees from Harvard and NYU, has name recognition, corporate connections, and deep party support. For example, former federal conservative cabinet minister Lisa Raitt is one of her campaign co-chairs. She also has a tendency to emphasize her motherhood, and that is what this article found so interesting. It's in her campaign videos and her bio, where she's described as, quote, a mom raising four beautiful kids with her husband, Andrew, unquote. Um, And she's raised it in interviews unprompted. When CBC asked her about her lack of political experience, she said, I've been working for 20 years in law and business. I started a charity and I've been doing that while raising kids. I think I bring a different kind of experience to Queens Park, unquote. So there's one angle here. Um, This uh, Chatelaine piece talks about um, basically the double-edged sword of using motherhood as um, as part of your brand. So, for example, for someone like Sarah Palin, she called herself, what, Mama Grizzly, I think mm-hmm. she called herself. Yeah. And we all know what happened to her kids. Um, what the One was a teenage mother, and the other one apparently likes to beat women. So... You know, once those things come out about your children, then the press finds them fair game because you brought them out. Yeah. Now, there's a question here about peddling one's family. Um, Chatelaine goes on to say that, hey, for men, it's not the same. They can be family men and still look at as competent and... Um, Basically, they're held to a much lower standard and get higher value out of it. And Chatelaine mentions, you know, people like George W. Bush, um, Stephen Harper, Justin Trudeau as fathers of young children while in office. And Barack Obama seems like sincerely devoted to their families. But they were helped in sustaining their role and image as engaged dads by having independent, smart, and well-liked wives willing to do the actual day-to-day, hands-on work and childcare while they govern. The demands of fatherhood aren't thought of as a constraint on men's time or focus. So, which is fair. Mm -hmm. However, this is only for a certain level of women. Okay, Caroline Mulrooney can say she's a mother but I'm sure she's had nannies. And I'm sure she could afford nannies for her four children. It's not like she's a single mom who's trying to make ends meet. No, and she's quite a high income earner. And she's quite a high income earner, and she's basically married to American business royalty. So in what planet is her motherhood um, somehow, I would say distinguishable from others beyond her income status. Mm -hmm. And I think that what this piece did not do and what was a missed opportunity is to look at at that class intersectionality instead of just placing this as a gender role issue. 
to be honest, the only smart, independent wife I see in this list is Michelle Obama. <laughs> Michelle Obama is was the breadwinner for that household for a while. Yeah. So that Obama should not be included in the rest. Second of all, I mean, or maybe I'm on third. I don't know. Caroline Mulroney's resume. I'm tired of having her resume shoved up my ass. I really am. Because you're telling me that we should elect for Ontario, for all of Ontario, the same type of person who basically put the who basically brought on the financial crises and left so many people homeless, broke, without work, etc. This is who we're we're holding up as excellence. On top of that, didn't she only practice law for a year? She says 20 years. Please. <laughs> Please. I'm still an economist. Yeah. I'm not practicing, yeah, but I'm right. still an economist. Yeah. It's interesting how quickly people want to pull out those credentials, but the credentials you should be concerned about with when it comes to electing someone for public office is are they able to serve in in terms of like listening to constituents, knowing what the issues are, having you know strategies and ideas that aren't just parroted back from a party or from this partisan perspective, but like and how they worked in the community in meaningful ways. Yeah, that's right. And besides this article, I have seen no scrutiny whatsoever. Everybody is like, "Woo, Caroline Mulroney, woo!" And I'm just like, "Wait a minute. Let's take a critical look." And who she is, and the f and the fact is, she catapulted into this position with having zero experience. She didn't have the decency to even hold a riding. Mm -hmm. How do they even know she's electable? Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that's the interesting thing. We had this discussion, you and I, on Twitter about the comparison to Jagmeet Singh, who everybody in Canadian media lost their shit over that he didn't have a seat but was running for the federal NDP. And it's like, yeah, he did have a seat. He was an MPP and the deputy leader for the NDP in Ontario. So we know he's electable. And yet people cried out saying he was entitled. Who did he think he is stepping into the federal No, Caroline space. Mulroney is fucking entitled. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And we're not having this conversation now about whether or not she's, she is even electable and where she'd be electable and what riding she'd run in and, and, all of, and scrutinizing the legitimacy of all of that. So when's the scrutiny coming? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> On top of that, I call this affirmative action for the elite. Yeah, like, we're, she's not going to get any scrutiny because she's the daughter of a former prime minister. And, like, we don't scrutinize those, that nepotism. And that's what bothered me with Trudeau, too is that we didn't scrutinize beforehand. Everybody was la-la in love with him. Mm -hmm. And now look, now we got this guy who's basically a fraud. I mean, and to go back to the credential thing, the idea that she studied at NYU and has, like, you know, top brand degrees in this and that, it's like, why, why is no one turning a critical lens to, again, the kinds of elected officials that we want? Like, do we want corporate lawyers who are trained in the U.S. to be all, like, to make up our House of Commons and our Queen's Parks? Like, I, you know, I would much rather see people coming from different backgrounds. I don't just mean, like, in appearance and culture. I mean, like, actually in terms of what they do and what they've experienced and who they've worked with and the communities that they're a part of um, and being rooted in that. I would rather see somebody, like, who runs like 
um, a smaller uh, type of, uh, more like a community, a community person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, either an organizer or somebody who works with with people when i say people in the community i don't mean business people in the community we seem to only think and this again is that corporatization of our values we seem to only think that corporate entities or people who come out of that world or that role are the only suitable people for politics and that's bullshit because look where they have us now i mean and i'm I'm no lover of kathleen Wynne. sure i i I actually am, but we can talk about I, that in the I, I just, I'm just not, because I got my electricity bill, and I was like, what the fuck? Okay. <laughs> anyway. Sure. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Kathleen Wynne. My thing is, like, we I, have enough of you guys. Like, we have someone to be Minister of Trade who has the same background. Like, can we get a diversity of, like, professions? Oh, so but it is diverse. Properly staff are like yeah. you know political positions. Oh, and but it is diverse positions. because she's a woman, and that's oh, the sure. other thing that's fucking bothering me is that is that because of the Patrick Brown thing, the progressive conservatives are looking for any woman they can find. Yeah, they want three women to finally debate each other on the provincial stage because you have Kathleen Wynne for the Liberals and Andrea Hor. It's really sad that you don't know her name, but that's not your fault. It's entirely her fault. (laughs) Well, you know what? If she she's a non-entity, and it's really unfortunate. Who the fuck runs her her cause? I know. I don't. I know. It makes me really upset. I'm I'm just saying that somebody needs to talk to her and put her on Twitter or something. Do an AMA. Do something. She she is, but she doesn't have. Yeah, she doesn't have that quite that charisma, and they've been absolutely outlefted by by the wind government for sure on so many. things. Yeah, that's another thing, but. Coming back to this Caroline Mulroney, the thing is, is that this is what, when you go to work and they want to expand the workplace and they want to expand diversity, they usually choose the first one they find. There's no scrutiny applied. And I'm here for scrutiny of people. I don't, I don't elect people. I don't vote for people because they're black or a woman or whatever. Yeah. I don't. I'm like, what do you got to say? Are you going to represent me? What kind of woman are you? (laughs) You know? And what I'm seeing is that this almost title is being handed to her. And when we talk about systemic problems, what, do you think she is going to do anything about income inequality? No. She thinks that poverty means that you can't take your kids to well, to hockey. Oh yeah. Remember she she said that in a McLean's I'm interview. I'm so over the whole hockey analogy is like creating tax incentives and as like a narrative in general. <laughs> well, I don't even like hockey. So Well, exactly. So Hockey's a garbage very, sport. I feel very it's, othered every it's time people so say hockey. Yeah. It's it's like I feel attacked. <laughs> I'm I'm just like and also, can we talk about her retaining the um, the services of Hamish Who? from the Rebel? Oh yeah, sorry, blanking. I'm blanking too. I, yeah. Anyway, so the Rebel, being the Fox News slash Breitbart of Canada, has this dude Hamish. Um, I'm going to find his name. I just said it. Marshall, thank you. 
Tavish Marshall, who apparently the PCs love. Mm. So this is, okay, so this is the party that says we want to be more inclusive. Because I saw also um, Andrew Shear's tweets about that, about how conservatism is open. It's inclusive. And I'm like, then why, why are you getting Hamish Marshall to run your election campaign? He did so for Patrick Brown, and he's doing so for Caroline Murphy. I mean, Mulrooney. I keep calling her Murphy. Wow. I don't know. I just She's I, bad with names. She's really bad with names. Yeah, I'm really bad with She's names. Lucky, you're lucky she remembers your name. I'm thoroughly <laughs> impressed sometimes, I wonder. Yeah. I be, uh, the only reason I remember Aaron's is because it's not Erica. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I just, I really just hate this candidacy with a passion deep in my soul. Well, great. Yeah. I can't wait for this, this to roll out over the next uh, few weeks as the uh, leadership convention is in early or mid-March. All right, our last segment, Misogynist of the Week. This this is it might be our first collection of people. There's more than one. Yes. Uh, our misogynists of the week are basically the entire staff of the West Wing of the White House. Um, we've got Chief of Staff John Kelly, Communications Director Hope Hicks, um, former Staff Secretary Rob Porter, and another staffer from the White House. David Sorensen, a speechwriter. So it was earlier this past week where Rob Porter, the former staff secretary at the White House, resigned his post uh, due to domestic violence allegations that he very strongly denies that prevented him actually from obtaining a full White House clearance um, that was very much needed for his job. Um, anyway, so he resigned, um, and Chief of Staff John Kelly knew about these allegations many months ago, and Rob Porter actually is now dating the communications director, who Hope Hicks, who played a role in crafting some of these statements that were in Rob Porter's favor that the White House has been put out, been putting out. Erica's face right now is of pure shock and disgust. Her, she's now palming her face. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's that scenario. And then last night, Friday night, it was announced that uh, a speechwriter would be resigning after his former wife also claimed that he was violent and emotionally abusive during their marriage. So with Rob Porter, it was two ex-wives, one of which sent a photo to the FBI of her with a massive black eye, saying that he had punched her. The other one was saying that she had to file an emergency restraining order against him, and those were what were, were holding up his uh, security clearance. Oh, it was during the security clearance. Yeah. Oh. Those women spoke to FBI. Like it, Yo. You know, for yep. all the trolls thinking they're false allegations. <laughs> and about, you know, ruining a man's career, yada, 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 yada. Yeah. So everyone in this situation 
particularly the Rob Porter situation, is complicit in making this man very, very powerful in that White House. He, the staff secretary, is the person who is responsible for collecting all of the, the policies and memos from staff members, putting like a little bow on them, organizing them, reading them, making sure, vetting them, and then handing them to the president for, or the chief of staff for consumption and information on a given day. So they're the gatekeepers. Yes. So he's dealing with like very secretive national security issues and doesn't have a full security clearance. Wait, he's already working there? He, yeah, he was, had been working there since the beginning. And he was, he was working on a temporary um, security clearance. Right. He hadn't been fully denied the, the full security clearance, but it seemed like he was going to be. And uh, the ineptitude runs deep here. Yeah, he eventually lost his job because these allegations became public. Hmm. <laughs> okay, I have many thoughts. One of them. Um, so he reflects this White House very well. And, um, you know, birds of a feather <laughs> well, yeah. flock together. I mean, the way Trump has come to his defense paints, paints that very clearly. And it's interesting that now Polk may lose her job, even though she has been with the president since even before he was a candidate. Yes. She was working for Trump like for the Trump organization and for Ivanka Trump well before he was even considering running. She is like his right-hand person. Mm -hmm. He has her in every single meeting. Mm. And now she's in a relationship with this guy and he's like fine seeing her walk out the door, but like, and is still protecting Rob Porter to the nth degree. Like that's really gross. Yeah. It just shows how much that he values the contributions of women (laughs) because she is, he, as someone who values loyalty above everything else, the fact that she's been so loyal to him and the fact that she potentially could have obstructed justice in some other situations, mm-hmm. the fact that he's just willing to be like, eh, it's fine, shows that he has no loyalty to anyone either. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's a narcissist. He's, he's a malignant narcissist. Sure. And everybody around him is there to, you know, feed that narcissism. I mean, he, and they're disposable. I, I said it, I said like a f- like many episodes ago, the only person who's not disposable in that White House, your friend Ivanka. <laughs> right? I was like, where is she going with this? <laughs> like, it's Ivanka. Isn't it true that Jared Kushner doesn't have security clearance either? No, he does not. I don't, and it's not clear why. I'm sure part of it is because he had to make 15,000 amendments to his form. Because he just kept making, oh, innocent omissions. I didn't know I had to to declare that meeting with that Russian person. Well, and he also has all of his wealth, like, implicated. Yes. And so many other dealings that may or may not be investigated already or part of the Russia yeah. probe. Like, so, yeah, I mean, the interconnectedness and, like, of, like, this all sorts. so it's greasy. Really, it's super greasy, super oh. shady. And, I mean, that's the big concern for people like Kushner and, and Ivanka is like how much their personal side uh, or their personal, their, their, um, you know, capitalist side, their, their personal ventures, their um, financial interests are tied up in, uh, in the presidency. And I think they, they don't see it as having been worth their while. 
they're not seeing the return that they had anticipated or I mean none of them Who, wanted, the Kushners? none of them wanted to win any of them and I mean Charles Kushner is also implicated as well that's is, the dad that's right? the dad who's already been found to have committed you know tax evasion and mm. well, went know, to prison it, for it yeah and jury fraud and all sorts of prosecuted yeah. by <laughs> Chris Christie. There you go. It's <laughs> my favorite. Uh, I know. Connection there. I know. Um, I don't think that the players involved. There's. I feel like there. This. This administration is just one big game, right? And so. And I'm not saying that that's good or bad or whatever. I just feel like to them, th- this is just yet another sort of game, the shell game, right? So you have the top tier, and the top tier is him and Ivanka. That's it. Huh. Not even not even the other children. No. Oh, definitely not no. the other children. No, no, no. They're useless. Yeah, yeah, and and he uh, it, to me it's obvious that he thinks they're useless too. Have you seen? He's never. He rarely comes to the defense of his sons. Always to Ivanka, right? Okay, so there's that, and then there are the second tier are the. Um, you know, the family, the sons, maybe Jared Kushner, maybe. But the second tier down, all disposable. And then the third tier are the enablers, the Hope Hicks, the... Um, the <laughs> By the way, did anybody watch Amaro- Amorosa on Big Brother? No. I don't have a TV. Do a I don't reel. either. Oh, yeah, I do. But I don't have any cable or anything like that. Mm. But yeah, apparently Amarosa is just must see TV. Well, she always does that. that. She always she knows that. if anything she is if she's good at anything, it's making good TV. She she knows how to make good TV. But I feel like you know all of these players around second and third tier are just there to insulate the top two. Yeah, that's their job. Um, they're disposable. Mm-hmm. Everybody's yeah. disposable in that White House. So it was, I think it was Wednesday night where Rob Porter resigned his post. And up, it was up until Tuesday where the chief of staff to the president was saying Rob Porter was, quote, a man of true integrity and honor, and I can't say enough good things about him. He is a friend, a confidant, and a trusted professional, and I am proud to serve alongside him. Yeah, I don't know why John Kelly would double down or even put his name in the same sentence as Rob Porter without waiting to see what the outcome was going to be. And then today Donald Trump tweeted something about due process and unfairness against allegations. There's a fucking photo of this woman with a black eye. There's a file. Also, maybe just wait. It's been investigated. being investigated. It's part of his security clearance check. They've given interviews to the FBI. Of course, I mean, this administration doesn't trust the FBI, so maybe that's part of it. But there is a total disconnect. And also, who is Rob Porter? Why is that the person you want to, like, live and die by? They've cut so many far more qualified people in that administration, which, I mean, is like a stretch of the word qualified but, you know, qualified in relative Qual- Qualified, terms. not necessarily competent. Yeah, sure. I mean, and yeah, so relative to what they're like, you know, the rest of the folks there. I mean, when you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, <laughs> you got to get what you got to get. But, uh, and, and Rob Porter, that's the one that they're like, oh, no. <laughs> By any means, we have to defend his honor. Like, what? All right, so I guess that about does it, ladies. Anything you want to add? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what haven't we covered? Yeah. 
it's, uh, yeah. Well, uh, as always, we want to thank Media Style for letting us hang out in their space. Shout out to Media Style. Media mm-hmm. Style is a progressive public affairs agency. They are a social enterprise making Canada a better place and located in Ottawa. Um, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook, Bad and B Podcasts, and send us your hate mail, your love notes. Send us your questions for our new advice column to our email address, badandbpod at gmail.com, and rate us on iTunes. That's how it does it. Bye! Bye. 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 Bye.